This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for April 20th. In the United States, there are 695,107 confirmed cases of the disease with 36,576 deaths. New York and New Jersey remain your epicenters with 1,025 deaths being reported in the last 24 hours in New York State and 322 being reported in New Jersey. They have now combined to represent 57% of all American deaths. The governor of Utah unveiled a three-phase plan to get his state reopened that could see in-house dining, gyms, and elective surgery open by the beginning of May. While appearing on The Ellen Show, California Governor Gavin Newsom said his state was weeks away from reopening and all mass gatherings would be banned until there is a vaccine with widespread distribution. This has been your hyperbole-free coronavirus update. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. There is news today. There is. There is news. There's news out there. There's the fact that it's one of my least favorite genre of stories, and that is Donald Trump tweeted. Donald Trump tweeted that various states that happen to be having these protests uh, about the shelter-at-home order should be liberated. Uh, I hate these stories. I don't like him doing it. I think that in this particular time, I would much rather we have a situation where we don't have extra chaos sewn into the pockets of our of the fabric of our society. But whatever. We have a Senate that refuses to uh, approve more money for a program that they already put out there. That's one of my, also one of my least favorite things to talk about. We've got, you know, the coronavirus stuff, uh, to be totally honest, by Monday, and and, uh, uh, that'll be for the PX3 Extra, but also by Wednesday, we'll have a much fuller idea on what states are going to do what in terms of... uh, you know, trying to find some semblance of a new normal in the age of plague world. But for right now, there's just not a lot there. So we're going to do things a little bit different here for the Friday show. We normally do a brainy interview on Fridays because, you know, a, a, a more specific interview. You know, a lot of people listen to this a couple days later. They listen to it on Saturday, on Sunday. So we like them to be a little bit evergreen. Well, guess what? I'm not only giving you one of them. I'm giving you two. I'm giving you two brainy interviews. One of them all about uh, uh, the interconnected nature of the world, the globalism uh, uh, that has defined the this, this uh, big blue marble since, you know, the end of the world wars and uh, the politics of isolationism. We're going to talk about that. 
We're also going to have another interview all about federalism and the rights of the states versus the rights of the federal government. So think of it as a Russian nesting doll, right? Where we're eventually, we're going to begin with the earth and then you open up the earth and you're going to get the nations. Then you open up the nations, you're going to get the states. A whole lot of talk about the push and pull of who calls the shots from the top down on the show today. We're also going to do some emails. But what do you say we go ahead and get started? Our first interview is with Christopher McKnight Nickel. He is the director of Oregon State University Center uh, for the Humanities and an associate professor of history. He's the Andrew Carnegie Fellow working on a project about the history of American isolationism. And he joins us now. Christopher, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you. Obviously, globalism and isolationism, uh, very, very interesting phrases in our modern context, considering everything that's going on. But it, uh, uh, as, as a personal story, during the election of Donald Trump, uh, after that kind of caught me unaware, one of the things that I kind of swore to myself that I would understand better because I felt like the lack of understanding had had led me down the path of not uh, uh, seeing the full picture of the 2016 election was the concept of a, a fear of globalism that seemed to be something that had taken root in many places throughout the world. Let's focus on on America, though, for this interview. Uh, where do the roots of American isolationism come from? So that's a great question, and it really does illuminate why you asked it, right? So uh, in American political thought and foreign policy, it goes back to the origins. It goes back to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe. Uh, and ideas about isolation are kind of baked into the American political and foreign policy calculus cake, um, which is to say that uh, from the earliest origins of the U.S., it's easy for us to forget this now. Um, the U.S. was a weak nation, a fledgling nation, a nation who the founders all understood to be in a precarious position. And so one of the safeguards against um, monarchical empires and other uh, threats looming on the horizon was to articulate a kind of doctrine or vision that would be flexible, but that would prioritize American interests first. Uh, and so in Washington, you get the famous and Jefferson and his Washington 1796 farewell address and Jefferson's first inaugural address in 1801. You get the first articulations of this transcending parties even. Uh, arguing for freedom from foreign entanglements. And if you take your Washington uh, and combine it with Jefferson, you get what uh, foreign policy thinkers tend to uh, phrase as a kind of cautious realism, uh, not being um, not being a, an adventuresome nation, uh, particularly not being uh, embroiled in the uh, old world, new world divide. Old world monarchical power politics was something to be avoided from the start. And you see this then articulated in other forms. I would point us to 1823 and James Monroe, and he argues that the U.S. has a kind of sacrosanct position in the hemisphere. It's the hemisphere um, that the U.S. can meddle with more, um, even though the U.S. was still a weaker power and the British Navy was what was fundamentally protecting the kind of Monroe Doctrine. Um, but all throughout the sort of founding multi-generational moment, you might say, ideas about isolation, about the benefits of self-sufficiency, of national autonomy, of steering clear of uh, alliance systems, foreign wars, that sort of thing was all there from the start. And so when you look to the 20th century or even the present, uh, and you look at some of the political rhetorics they related to America first, uh, if it surprised you in 2016, it shouldn't have because it's been there from the start. 
Uh, and that rhetoric uh, often invokes explicitly or implicitly uh, the kinds of things that Washington or Jefferson were holding up as, as really fundamental values of the, um, of the American nation state, even before the nation had great commercial uh, and military power. Yeah, you know, in 2016, it didn't surprise me in that it existed, because certainly even in my lifetime, I had seen different versions of it pop up and you've had uh, it plug into different elements, be it, uh, uh, you know, immigration hawks or, or uh, you know, Ross Perot's, you know, the, the, the giant sucking sound or all the jobs and businesses going to Mexico uh, by way of uh, NAFTA. What surprised me was how sticky it was and the fact that it was not, at least to this point, as it had been proven nationally, to be a fringe issue. This now seemed to hit a certain tipping point when compared with, let's say, Brexit or, or some of the other European situations. It seemed like there was a mood in the air of let's reevaluate uh, re what we're getting from a, these global entanglements, uh, mm -hmm. you know, is yeah. is that is there a, a natural cycle to that? You know, I, I'm not sure if it's natural. You know, there, there might be some ways in which political scientists might want to make a case for kind of a, a cyclic nature of recurrence at the highest level of national politics. That's kind of what you're alluding to. Sure. Um, but I think if you look at individual issues, you'll see that that the there's sort of a a sine curve or, or a constant wave flow here, uh, particularly on immigration. That's the best example. You're exactly right. And I would um, point us to uh, actually a term that I think is great for listeners to, to consider, this term that historians have been using uh, for a little while now called the intermestic. It's that um, crossover place between the international and the domestic. Um, and that's where you often see isolationist ideas have a lot of potency. Immigration is a really good example. But so is uh, the forms of protectionist um, uh, isolationism, protectionist economics, uh, and, and as a countervailing push against, uh, say, the flow of, of global capital and globalization. And this also goes back to the 19th century, the tariffs as, as, a, as a real strategy for both domestic and foreign policy purposes. Um, so, but, so I think there's, there's some of those are key components, but I also think we do a disjustice, uh, an injustice to ideas about isolationism um, and their power and their enduring appeal. Uh, if we sort of forget, you know, Pat Buchanan in 1992 yeah. is there at the highest level of American politics. Sure, he doesn't win the nomination, but he's pushing for a kind of isolationism in the 70s after, uh, as, as Vietnam is winding down, as there's a real backlash against American um, interventionism. You have historians uh, like Robert Tucker arguing for a touch of isolationism, uh, and this being very popular in the, say, editorial pages of, the, you know, the New York Times, for instance, even. Um, or if you go back further, 1952, the the uh, presumptive Republican candidate for president was Robert Taft of Ohio, who was uh, widely thought of as, as an isolationist. He had been an America first sympathizer. Uh, now, maybe I'm pointing out every 20 or so years we're seeing this sure. rise up in national politics. Uh, but also, you know, it's there and present, especially if you look at particular kinds of issues, protectionism, uh, protectionism, immigration being the, the two best, I think. Well, and we've certainly seen a resurgence of it in you know, the 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 Democratic Party, which at least in this primary on on, you know, the stopping of forever wars, uh, for example, the the uh, the the idea that Amer America has become far too much of an adventurous nation militarily. And, you know, Tulsi Gabbard and, and Bernie Sanders particularly kind of put voice to that. 
So so here's here's my question then. If we're to pull apart the strands, let's understand that globalism is a big tangle of many different threads. What are those threads? The threads of globalism. You mean. The threads of globalism, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and let me, I'll refract that through our isolationist lens in the U.S. too, so let's see if I can do two things at once. Cool. Um, if, if you're thinking about how American uh, isolationist um, arguments, uh, w- what they revolved around, they revolved around primarily uh, opposition to or restrictions on national sovereignty imposed by entering into global agreements, permanent alliances, and interventions in foreign conflicts that they understood to not be in the vital interest of the nation. Um, so uh, isolationist arguments, therefore, weren't, uh, as the popular caricature goes, naive or backward-looking or atavistic, right? They were forward-looking, but about um, having a free hand in uh, international relations. If you think about the key characteristics of globalization, on the other hand, they're very much characterized by global agreements and global organizations, um, by permanent alliances and alliance structures that, that, uh, that make possible safety, regional and national safety, so that you can then free up uh, resources for trade and for what's generally thought of as, you know, sort of commercial and cultural uplift or higher standard of living, to put it more simplistically. Um, And so there's a real opposition between those two, right? So if the prism of isolationism is to reject that, then then some of the key threads of globalization, um, the the free flow of ideas, peoples, and goods across borders, for instance, uh, the concept of the possibility of universal values, for instance, uh, those are very much in conflict with uh, ideas about isolationism. And I guess I would also add historically, if we're thinking about the kind of rise of, of globalization, global government, global treaties and alliance structures, global economics, like we have to go back to World War II. And it's amazing to think in that moment, you have 1940 to 41, the America First Committee is the largest anti-war lobby organization in U.S. political history, eight, roughly 800,000 members, 600 plus chapters across the U.S. It included socialists as well as people on the far right. Uh, so it's really pretty heterodox, fairly heterodox for that kind of organization. Right after that, just within a few years, right, 1945, you get the founding of the U.N. 19, by 1947, uh, you're, you're seeing the seeds of what from 48 to 51 is the Marshall Plan, right? Full European recovery, handouts of money that, that no repay, repayment is asked for, very much anathema back around to those ideas about isolationism, about not entering into those kinds of, of uh, alliances and treaties. And in 1949, the U.S. enters the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and, and, and it's only the second time in U.S. history that the U.S. has entered that kind of collective security agreement. And that is, you know, the hallmark of globalization and uh, collective or security structures. And it's very much the opposite of what Washington and Jefferson were advocating for. Or people like Robert Taft in 1952, he rejects NATO. He does not like the idea of having U.S. troops stationed in Europe, for instance. So yeah, so so militarily, economically, and diplomatically, these are these are the core tenets that you know, uh, even from from our isolationist perspective, we would look at and say these are our these are the tendrils that connect us to the world, and either we want to err on the side of minimizing or cutting them off entirely for either freedom or because they are destructive. Would that be the yep. isolationist perspective? Quite right. Yep. And, and, and the, guided by this view of autonomy, sort of uber alles, 
that's that's the key, and that's really what Trump has tapped into with his America First language. Um, that you know, renegotiating these deals to make them better, even if the U.S. stays in NAFTA, it will be better for U.S. interests because it will be more fundamentally unilateral or bilateral. Whereas if you think about the hallmarks of globalization, they're much more multilateral, and in their aspirations, they equalize to some extent large and small states and create more symmetry of power. I mean, obviously, we know that globalization doesn't always work that way, and maybe rarely does, uh, but it does. Uh, uh, pretend to and uh, and aspire to that kind of thing. The very much the opposite. If you think about the vital interest structure of of the way that uh, isolationist or America first unilateralist arguments operate, it is kind of crazy. Because for obviously Donald Trump is an anomaly in terms of some of our modern political meta. But if you do look at him in in the pantheon of other isolationists, he, he really is soft peddling like like the, the 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 arguments that he's making is far more akin to us like renegotiating a better mortgage rate than it is you know <laughs> dissolving the un or or you know leaving wholesale all these international organizations it's usually you know he, it's not like he doesn't want a deal with china he just wants a new deal with china yeah yeah, you know, and I think you could go even further with that. Um, it, the same as the, you know, if you think about how he's nibbled around the edges, the member nations of NATO should be paying their fair share. Not NATO is anathema to American autonomy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is. There's this. Just this argument of like, you know, <laughs> he's like like the guy that always calls into his gym membership to try to extend the like you know three free sauna days that he gets as part of the. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the, the sign-on package. It's just you know, there's there's just always going to be another thing that that we can uh, uh, that we can negotiate for ourselves. We're now four years into uh, a a more isolationist uh, leadership. Do we have any signs on how that is wearing with the public? So we do have some signs. Um, is- it's pretty clear, actually, quite rapidly after President Trump took office in January 2017, uh, that polls suggested that Americans were not as enamored of uh, a kind of strict America first withdrawal or retrenchment uh, from the world. Uh, they were happy with some pullback from Afghanistan, for instance. Uh, the Chicago Council did some of this polling. The Council on Foreign Relations did some of this polling. We've seen this from the Pew um, Pew Research uh, Center as well. Um, and uh, so you, you, there's some good information that Amer- the American pu- public opinion, at least, uh, is not supporting wholesale withdrawals from NATO or even uh, some of the interventions. Um, although, as you mentioned, right, we have this new Quincy Institute, uh, this odd configuration of George Soros money and Coke money uh, to support the end of endless wars. Uh, and, and that does seem to have wide traction in the Democratic Party in particular. But there's also you know, Republicans like Rand Paul who, who are pushing that line. Uh, so it's not clear that, that, um, that this isolationist set of arguments, if we want to call it that, uh, is fitting that well. And the Quincy Institute would say that they're you know, a non- or anti-interventionist kind of uh, organization, and they, they would want us to distinguish between the two, the kinds of ideals that I've noted that are much wider and, and, uh, and maybe deeper in terms of isolationism, going back as taproots to American political thought, versus a kind of narrow, the U.S. shouldn't be in costly interventions abroad, period. Um, so it, it looks 
to me like in this moment that the American population is not following along with some of the tenets of a kind of arch-Trumpian isolationist position, um, if that can even be said to describe to, to describe his views. Yeah, yeah, uh, because yeah, I, I think I think I think you're 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 right to say that that there is a little bit of a nibbling around the edges. Uh, all right, let, let me. There are two things that I think trend-wise, from my layman's perspective, that, that seems to have increased and maybe caused, if we can say that America has had, uh, that that America has has, has had uh, an inflection point on this. And that would be, A, there has just been a buildup from the end of the world wars to now of more and more international agreements for various different reasons. Uh, and number two, just how basically interconnected everybody is between the internet and, uh, you know, uh, the jet technology that has been able to move us uh, uh, so quickly between geographical areas that were so remote before. Uh, how much do you think that both of those, A, the glut, or let's say the buildup of, international agreements and alliances and the interconnectivity have affected these uh, these points of view? Those are sharp insights. I think that uh, we can slightly disaggregate them and bring them back together. So here's what I'd say. If you're looking at the time of the world wars, uh, let's go back to World War One. Uh, a number of scholars have demonstrated pretty convincingly to me, and I've seen this in my own work, that the U.S. was enmeshed in global networks. Um, you, you had uh, rail trans transmissions. You've got uh, telegraph, telephone, uh, radio uh, coming online. And shortly thereafter, you've got the rise of the automobile, um, and uh, in 1927, you start to have transatlantic uh, air flight. Um, you know, that's the Lindbergh moment. Um, uh -huh. And that's the era that uh, the flu pandemic, the first one, the 1918 to 19 one, um, breaks out, and it travels around the world between March and June of 1918. Um, and and I, I'm pointing this out both because of our moment and also thinking about interconnectivity. The human beings, the people's goods and ideas that were moving around the world in the context of World War One. Uh, were also transmission lines for viruses. What there wasn't yet in the world system were the kinds of robust international organizations that you and I are talking about in terms of globalization, right? It's not until after World War II that you get the UN, in 49 you get NATO, you know, uh, uh, you don't have the same sorts of structures like, uh, you know, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade comes in 1947, it includes the U.S. and something like 22 nations, and then in 1995 that becomes the World Trade Organization. So these are the hallmarks of that global global set of networks, um, and you need those institutions to have globalization the way we tend to talk about it. Um, but we had global interconnectivity before then. Um, and so then if we're thinking about how, does, how do isolationist kinds of arguments or, or even hyper-nationalist arguments fit into that, you can look at the World War I moment to see some really striking contour, uh, contours of the world we live in today. Um, so wartime governments had this oppression uh, against uh, free speech and the Sedition Act in the U.S., the Defense of the Realm Act in the U.K. Uh, so the press and politicians and most citizens didn't speak out about seeing the flu spreading, for instance. Um, and so they cover it up. Uh, you also see nationalist kinds of sensibilities about not wanting to show that they uh, weren't combat ready. Uh, and you see a kind of rise of xenophobia and racism related to it. <laughs> the term Spanish flu alone should give you a clue, but it's not like that's the only one that was used in those days. In fact, the Spanish like to call it the French flu 
flu. Uh, Germans called it the Russian pest and on and on, kind yeah. of demonizing opponents. Uh, and that's very much like our current time, right? The kind of na- the ways that na- nationalist uh, politics have closed up borders or attempted to use border control as a method of dealing with the virus is, is very much, you know, in uh, contradiction to the patterns of globalization that we've seen. You just can't stop viruses from crossing borders, whether it's 1918 or 2020. Yeah. The other thing that I wonder is it's not like we have not created a permanent globalist class in terms of our economy. And and I mean that as more and more people uh, can buy and sell goods between each other across borders, you know, that, that there are international alliances that happen for matters big and small on message boards and social media now. Uh, uh, and that is never going away but it is very much a ground up version of this, which I almost wonder whether or not that inherently breeds uh, the, the idea that uh, top down solutions now could be viewed more skeptically. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. You know, I think you, there's some ways you could describe that. There's sort of a populist, but also elitist way that we're connected across borders. Uh, there are new ways to conf- to configure information in groups, you could all call this a maybe a 2.0 or 3.0 version of globalization. That is, we can connect uh, across borders, within borders, within regions. Look at what's going on in the U.S., for instance. You yeah. know, the three states on the West Coast have a kind of alliance about when to do, uh, how to measure data, think about disease, and, and act together in terms of their economies. Uh, and then within them, you have sub-regional groups thinking about farming in a time of crisis and that sort of thing. That's that's fascinating. You know, I, I, it's. I wonder what the implications of that will be for the future. I'm not so sure that your assumption that it's here to stay is necessarily accurate, uh, but uh, but I'm not sure what could replace that set of connections either. I mean, it, it seems like that will be driven by technological change. And certainly one thing we've seen um, that isolationists, for instance, but internationalists as well, haven't been able to deal with is that the kind of velocity of technological change has always kept them, uh, has outpaced their ability to think about national politics in an international system. You know, so think to the 90s. Uh, everybody was talking and writing about the end of nation states and the rise of these blocks, right? the EU, <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. That seems hopelessly naive now, but in a way, what you just described, the kind of cross-border capacity of the internet has done away with the nation state, but in a very different way from the sort of international systems theory that would, that would talk about that. Well, and, you know, inherently, whenever, either in this soft form that we're talking about with interconnectivity on the internet or in global alliances, and we are kind of seeing this now with, let's say, like the WHO with the the origins of, of the virus, is that you wind up, or how it spread, you wind up making local problems more international, right? And and be it uh, uh, in China's handling of an, an initial outbreak, or if the United States is lax because we have such a rich and populous nation that will inherently spread it going further. There is always more of a, of, of, of a reason for you to pay attention to how your neighbor is acting because never has it more it affected you faster. And, and that's just, just a fascinating kind of a, a subplot as we, you know, now have to, we're forced to deal with a international problem. 
Yeah, I, I would take that. I would be even tougher in your assessment. I think that, you know, 1918, we're pretty sure through epidemiological studies that the flu originates in Kansas in the U.S. It yeah. may have had some origins in Vietnam or France. Uh, but in any case, the, the virulent form of the flu that kills, uh, you know, uh, something like 20 to 50 million people around the world comes from Kansas. Uh, what we didn't know then, what we didn't have then, were robust international organizations like the WHO and nation states that were committed to sharing health data, right? There was a world war after all. So, but today we do have those, which you're just pointing out. So it's even worse. It's even more tragic failure of government when, when nation states and their leaders don't follow the data and disease and the evidence, or you could think Think about this in terms of you know a, a looming depression or recession. Leave aside the virus, yeah. right? If you see that mortgage-backed securities are a big problem in the U.S., what can what can the European Union be doing, or is there a way that China could deal with that? You know, so it's a real indictment of nation national governments when you have these international organizations sharing so much information and individuals and multinational corporations, which we haven't really gotten into too much here either. Yeah. Um, uh, that they're all sharing this information. Like, wow, you know, if the U.S. winds up being a world leader in deaths and disease because of this virus, uh, it's because of a failing, a failure of communication. But the international systems, they were blinking red for a while. Sure, yeah, and, and also it's it's. Uh, I think one of one of the things that also kind of comes into clash, and this might be the more isolationist perspective, is that there is an assumption in an alliance of shared values, right? And and it's mm-hmm. there's a question of exactly what that common denominator is, and and whether or not you are a full blown China skeptic or you are just like all of us are trying to understand the trajectory of this thing that has now affected everybody globally. There is no question that uh, China's top down information. Uh, uh, releasing by the government is different than that of the United States. If even just by we, you know, the statewide release a lot more information independent of the federal government. Uh, that is that's a question, right? And that's and that's something that I know for the WHO. Even if you're looking at them skeptically, you can certainly make the argument to say, well, what are you meant to do? The WHO doesn't swing that big of a stick. Uh, with with China. So if they don't want to tell them something or they don't want to admit something, there's only so much that the WHO can, you know, uh, uh, ring the alarm bell. Absolutely right. Yeah. You know, one of the kind of trite phrases about this and for us who study the subject is that, you know, these kinds of global organizations are only as good as, uh, you know, sort of the, the the sum of their parts. They're only the sum of their parts. And, and if, you know, China's not sharing information, then they can't be greater than that, you know, yeah. um, or, you know, that, that there are a lot of weak links within these organizations is another way to think about it. Um, but, you know, again, I would say this doesn't seem that fundamentally new. You can think to the Cold War era uh, and uh, the question of peace peace, for instance, or arms reductions, you know, you needed to have people on the ground inspecting uh, to, to uh, trust but verify kind of thing. Um, and, and the same could be said now. I mean, the fact that there are, you know, CDC folks, there are people um, through the WHO who go out and, and do try to corroborate information, um, you know, suggests that it's possible, but, but that you always have a kind of limited set of, of information coming through these global networks and global institutions and organizations. Yeah, I I do wonder what the future of these are. I wonder what the future of the WHO is. I wonder what the future of the UN is, uh, because it it is something that now we see, man, we we understand the worth of 
a global body that can get people on the same page, but uh, you have to wonder exactly how clean these pipes are. <laughs> you have you have to wonder yeah. exactly how how efficient it is and whether or not uh, the the push and pull is. Uh, are we looking at greater cooperation and possibly greater enforcement by a global mm -hmm. body, which of course would make an isolationist tear their hair out, or is it uh, a more of a agility that we should be pulling out? And if we do rebuild, it should be from a position of national interest. Yeah, I mean, you're pointing out these are the fundamental sort of contradictions and issues in uh, in this set of questions. And isolationists have orient towards one direction. They say, look, there's a real problem of reconciling national self-interest with what you might call universal or global ideals and institutions. And for isolationists, transcending the interests of a particular nation are, is not in their interest, right? If for America's foreign relations, America comes first would be a way to put it. Uh, but if you're thinking about other configurations uh, that could help more human beings than just those who reside in the United States, uh, you, you come you come you confront that question about reconciling self-interest uh, and other larger interests uh, in a very different way. You know, and I, I would add this this moment today, uh, and your your point about connectivity also kind of influences this. You know, what are the alternatives that we can think of or see on the horizon right now? You know, if uh, data about uh, from from online um, thermometers can indicate to us where a new hotspot might come up, yeah. you know, do we need the WHO? Do we need the UN? Um, could we work through private channels or public-private hybrids? You know, this is what Herbert Hoover used to talk all about: associationalism, finding public and private um, uh, kind of associations that are voluntary for the greater good. Uh, didn't work in the depression for him, but it worked in other relief moments. Um, so, you know, is that possible? And then what are the, what are, what's the underside of that? You know, are we outsourcing, are we going to be outsourcing this kind of collective work, not to nation states anymore, but to Amazon, you know, and or Facebook, and they're collecting our data. You know, what is that? What, what are the implications of that? And again, isolationists would would orient us to an important set of questions there, right? You know, that our elected representatives are supposed to make these decisions, as flawed as their decision making might be. And if you outsource that to other people or groups, even in other nations who are elected representatives, you may get outcomes that you don't want. Uh, and for me, in studying isolationism for for many years, you know, I never thought I'd be a proponent of. It, and I'm not. But, you know, the kind of countervailing force of isolationist arguments is really useful for thinking about questions, whether they're, uh, you know, what are, what are the cost, what's the cost benefit analysis of intervention abroad, or something as, you know, uh, as simple as what we're just talking about now, seemingly simple, deceptively simple, right? What other, what are the alternatives to the WHO? And would the private sector, a non-nation state solution actually be beneficial to people within or across nations? And I think that is the one seductive element that not only can can be a beautiful thought and a, and an amazing thing to work toward, but also get us in trouble is 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 there the human being wants a happily ever after, right? And there is no greater version of that in our modern world than world peace. <laughs> and that's like you know yeah. all of the global alliances ultimately can kind of promise a step forward toward that some kind of global unity but at the same time you got to check the work and you got to see whether or yeah. not it's pushing uh it is it is indeed making our lives better and not just sort of selling us on a a fairy tale ending that might indeed be a fairy tale 
Yeah. And in the long wake of 9-11, for instance, now, um, we, I, I, you know, we see this kind of skepticism about U.S. interventionism, about the U.S. role in some of these institutions like NATO uh, or like NAFTA that, that President Trump has done a lot of politicking on. We see that a little differently, you know, because the cost benefit there has been, you know, the U.S. hasn't achieved universal basic health care. Uh, whether or not you think that's a good thing, certainly the burn rate of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan could have easily been devoted to that or massive infrastructure programs, right? Um, And if where you started your point, which I think is a really profound one, we have this sort of human, or I'd like to think human compulsion or or aspiration towards peace, Um, you know, how do you achieve that, Uh, especially for a nation that has 800 bases around the world and is kind of, you know, an entangled giant? Um, That's something that Trump has responded to. Uh, That's something that goes way back, right, to the origins, to Washington and Jefferson. But it's also not one that has been, um, I guess I would say, uh, it's not very novel because uh, other configurations in American politics have, have made a very similar case to the one you and I are sort of pushing towards, right? So in the early 60s, John, John Kennedy said, you know, he's not, he didn't call for a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. What he wanted was a peace for everyone, sort of peace in our time, uh, peace through channels of communication, peace through, you know, world organizations, uh, peace through, you know, collective beneficial thinking about uh, positive outcomes for all human beings, health, you know, sort of, um, uh, in other words, a version of FDR's four freedoms, want, fear, expression, worship, make them free and open to everyone. Um, that, those are kind of transcendent ideals that, that you don't hear from Trump, uh, but that you could hear in other configurations of skepticism about a Pax Americana or, or, or movement towards kind of world peace. Um, you know, and I think we can point back to other moments in U.S. political history where that's been very appealing. The challenge is that the isolationist arguments, that is, uh, they, they often could could figure themselves around a kind of nationalism that's pretty bellicose. And people like that. Um, William James famously said uh, that it's like blowing cold air on a hot fire to try to fight back against bellicose patriotism, right? The war fever, the war fervor. And, you know, even though there's a lot of people who want the U.S. out of wars today, uh, sort of an isolationist warmongering is very much with us. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, that is a excellent point for us to leave it on. And it was indeed made by Christopher McKnight Nichols. He is the director of Oregon State University Center for the Humanities and an associate professor of history. He's also the Andrew Carnegie fellow working on a project about the history of American isolationism. Check out his books. Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age, explaining the origins of the modern ideas of isolationism and his forthcoming co-edited book, Rethinking the Grand American Strategy. Also follow him on Twitter at C. McNichols and visit his website, ChristopherMcNichols.wordpress.com. Christopher, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me on. This has been a great conversation. All right. While we're between interviews, a quick reminder that you support this show entirely at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Folks, you guys have made this a, uh, you know, obviously a huge part of my life. It is the dominant part of my life. Indeed, you've made me a political commentator and I could not be more thrilled about it. If you'd like to chip in, take politics seriously. A reminder that the $3 level gets you two extra episodes per week and a custom RSS feed that you can put into any podcatcher of your choice. No downloads, 
No passwords. Literally copy a URL into the podcatcher of your choice and just enjoy those bonus episodes the same way you would anything else podcast-wise that you listen to. That is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our next interview is with Rick Hills. He is a professor of law at NYU Law School. You can find his work at profsblog.com. That is P-R-A-W-F-S-B-L-A-W-G.com, where he writes about federalism and the law. Rick, welcome to the show. Oh, really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So much of the conversation that's happened specifically over the last week has been about the relationship between the federal government and the states. Obviously, this is a a very unique challenge for the country, but let's let's just go ahead and and start here. How would you describe uh, uh, the, the the most common of the tensions uh, between the federal government and the state government in a nationwide crisis like this? Well, um, the historic tension has been competition among the states themselves for resources. From the very beginning, during the Revolutionary War, um, states fought with each other for ammunition, soldiers, basic help against the British. And the federal government is supposed to form a coordinating function in these circumstances. If the federal government is competent and strong, then it can make sure that all the states pull together to help the states that are most threatened. Um, and that's why we created a national government in the first place, because of the collective action problems among the th- different states. So it is it is the, the, the federal government in a situation like this where, I mean, I guess during the Revolutionary War, everything is geographically lined up, uh, is there to be a, a clearinghouse, a, a center point uh, uh, to then distribute to the states? Or is it more of like a referee? Um, you know, you can say referee, but actually, when you have a national crisis, the role has to be more robust than that, um, because it might very well be that in order to fight, you have to sacrifice some parts for the whole. You know, imagine that, for instance, the British have left Boston. They're just no longer there. Um, so Boston's sitting pretty. It has no real need to contribute to the war effort. Um, now the British are in Virginia. Should we send Massachusetts people down to Virginia? Should we force Massachusetts to pay much higher taxes than they want to pay? That's much more than a referee role. That's more sure. playing the heavy. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. As if, a, as if a referee in a soccer game doesn't merely tell you, you know, what you can't do, but also tells you what you must do, what, what you have you to do. Play. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, if we can kind of bring it into the modern lens here, uh, the biggest conversation has been supplies and now it seems like the emerging issue is state aid because there is a lot of money going out to prepare for this that now has left state budgets wrecked uh in in history how has government responded to problems like this well um you know Often the national government simply leaves the states out of the equation in wartime. The states just have no role to play. It's the federal government that spends the money. In this situation, however, when you're making war against a virus, there actually isn't a robust national, um, single national presence here. There's no commander in chief or joint chiefs of staff for disease. Um, You've got instead a bunch of fragmented federal statutes 
that allow the federal government to mobilize resources. Um, the most recent wave of resources, um, the CARES Act, just basically um, takes a fire hose of money and sends it to the states in a pretty indiscriminate way. You know, you're talking about $150 billion that goes to states based on population. So there's no real federal role for allocating the money under the CARES Act. Yeah. Um, likewise, they give it, you know, um, there's a ton of money that's just been provided also for hospitals and providers, but that's just based upon whatever they spent on Medicare fee-for-service back in 2019. So again, it's pretty mechanical, fire hose of money. Um, where the controversy exists is um, actually with stuff that's much less important in some ways, but much more urgent, and that's this medical equipment. Yeah. Um, the, you're right, you know, so there you have states competing with each other to buy the stuff. There's scarcity, so the prices are skyrocketing. And the question is, will the Fed step in and buy the stuff on behalf of the states? Um, and they just have not really played that robust a role. There's a couple of statutes that allows them to play that role. Um, but the, there's been some reluctance on the federal government to step in and do more. So ironically, the, comp the problem is not the states are saying, hey, Fed, don't play the heavy, don't do so much. Instead, most of the governors are saying, hey, Fed, do much more. Yeah. Um, we want you to take the lead here. What, are, what, what is the reluctance to not do more? Well, you know, that's a, a political question more okay. than anything else. You know, um, we can speculate. Um, one difficulty might be that uh, whenever you do more, you step on someone's toes. There's important parts of the Republican constituency that don't like regulation of big business. And part of the doing more is basically invoking the Defense Production Act to force companies to enter into contracts for everything from, you know, basically PPEs, um, yeah. personal protective equipment, face masks and gowns and gloves and Lysol wipes. Um, and uh, that's not it doesn't sit well with some Republicans um, that the Fed should play that kind of heavy role. So that's one ideological obstacle, perhaps. Another obstacle is you could get it wrong, and then you take the blame. You know, yeah, so that, that, there that, might that, be a, that you that you are are forcing a company by way of this act to produce things, and then you've produced too much, or you do damage to the company long term. Yeah, but yeah. Well, also a bigger question is where do you send the stuff once you get it? Um, ah. So FEMA is getting a lot of FEMA is getting into a lot of trouble because um, the governor's accused FEMA of stepping in grabbing PPE and sending it to unknown destinations. And this has really irritated governors in six or seven states. Um, the governor of Colorado claimed that they had a big shipment of ventilators. They had the purchase all arranged and then FEMA swooped in and took their shipment. Now FEMA vehemently denies this. Um, and they claim they have a way of allocating um, medical supplies to what they call the supply chain stabilization task force. But it's almost impossible to figure out exactly where this stuff is going. Apparently, FEMA has a list of hotspots, um, and they're, sending, they're trying to direct the stuff that they get to the hotspots. Um, but they're not winning a lot of kudos from the governors, and maybe not from the public in general, for exactly how well they're managing the crisis. So you can see that's another reason why the feds might want to step back and say, hey, governors, why don't you give this a try? Yeah. Because they have more of a knowledge of uh, where where they need things. And at the very least, then it's just going to any bad blood will fall in the natural order of bad blood competition that happens between states to begin with. Actually, absolutely. Um, so naturally, the states are trying to get together. There's been, um, I guess, three state 
we could call them consortia, um, to organize purchasing collectively and to also organize the decision of reopening the government. I guess the latest one was the Midwestern yeah. governors. Um, but you can see huge problems here, right? Because there's going to be winners and losers in any system of allocating medical equipment. Um, how are you going to divide those um, resources up? It's, everybody thinks they're on the front line. So who's going to get the equipment first? And the I guess the problem is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. You know, no, governors come from different political parties. Yeah. So those governors uh, in the Midwest, only two of them are Republicans, DeWine and Holcomb, that's um, Ohio and Indiana. But Kim Reynolds of Iowa, she's, she's not a member of that consortium. And there's a reason for that, right? This is an ideologically divisive topic. And so getting the governors to cooperate means you have to overcome both sort of, uh, regional competition and partisan competition. Yeah, you know, it is it is very, very interesting to kind of see that some of the I mean, the, the governors that are entering into these at a certain point, you can just imagine the attack ad of, uh, you know, while citizens of this state needed things, uh, our governor was more concerned about giving things to another state, especially when. This, oh, yeah, especially when this is, you know, this is such an interesting I mean, if you. Try to divorce the fact that it's obviously uh, a death, both existential and literal, surrounds us, uh, and and there is obviously a, a lot of very very serious problems that are happening now. There is this kind of very cut and dry, weird logistics problem because you don't mm -hmm. exactly know where you're going to need things. It's a failure if you don't get the things to where they need to go two weeks before they needed them. Uh, and yes. uh, uh, there are so many layers of people whose job it is to solve the problem that uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, as much as we we look at, you know, the, the role of the federal government here, I think that that there's there's kind of a reason why we've had a lot more Monday morning uh, uh, quarterbacking than than in, in the moment, uh, you know, hard solutions that then live on to be great takes yeah it's not exactly a period where some robert moses like super powered executive fish um, figure has stepped forward um the closest probably is cuomo um he's the vice chair of the um, national governors association he'll be the chair next year and he's been the kind of guy who's been doing the pr where you know he's very visible every day giving a briefing and he's yeah. called for a state consortium um you know to purchase stuff um, I don't think that talk of the state consortium is going to go anywhere very fast. Um, but the idea is that the prices are high. If you had a single buyer, they could negotiate a better price um, and not bid up the prices of these supplies. And it's just interesting that the president has not stepped forward to play this role, um, to play the role of a heavy. Um, you know, there's risk, there's huge political risk, but there's also a big political reward yeah. um, in looking like a leader. You know, um, the classic political science on this, by the way, is uh -huh. from a couple of um, folks, Terry Moe and Will Howell. And Will Howell at University of Chicago just recently published a book on this um, where he says, naturally, the president wants to put him or herself forward um, because they're always going to be blamed for anything that happens, even if they don't put themselves yeah. forward. So it's just a political mistake not to play the role. I used to figure Robert Moses because I'm a New Yorker, but choose your favorite dictatorial executive. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a mistake not to be in Napoleon. Um, because if you're, if you're not Napoleon and things go badly, 
um, you're going to take the blame. It really doesn't matter who fumbled the ball. You're always going to be seen as the quarterback. Yeah, you know, that, that is that is a, a fascinating thing and also kind of brings us into our, our, our next topic because it is obviously a part of our political calculus where, you know, I don't know how many Twitter threads I read about how the election of Donald Trump was the first step on the road to authoritarianism that might factor into people's brains when they think about exactly how much Donald Trump as the president should be taking the full reins of this. So let me ask you from the constitutional perspective, how much of what we are seeing now is something that has a, a, a framework by way of a of our constitution and how much of this is just defined by our modern politics? Well, interestingly enough, I think um, the Constitution's framework plays a huge role just in the idea that over and over again you hear people saying that the states are the primary responders, um, the Fed's role is interstitial and minor, etc. That is totally an artifact of a constitutional tradition where the states really do and have taken the, the primary role in crises like this. You know, um, if this were a wartime situation with a human opponent rather than a viral opponent, yeah, the reaction, the reaction would be totally different. Um, and so, you know, in theory, HHS and FEMA have some statutory authorities that are pretty powerful. But in practice, because of this constitutional culture, they won't invoke them. Um, and so I actually think the Constitution is looming large here and maybe not in a 100 percent great way. Um, if you think you need a more robust national response. So then then I mean, I guess that's that's the other thing about this is that it, we, everything that we can compare it to uh, a natural disaster, a war, they all have geographical focal points. Right. A natural mm -hmm. disaster happens somewhere, maybe many somewheres, but there are somewheres involved. A war has a front. They have points of attack. Let's say that the United States was being invaded. We would know if it was in Los Angeles or New York. This is so amorphous that I, 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 <laughs> I, I have a hard time even thinking of where, you know, the, 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 the point of care needs to be so preemptive uh, whether or not there is a better solution than your local authority. Well, that's a, that's a very good point. I think the amorphous quality of this means that you're, you have a twin problem. First of all, because it's disease rather than war, there's just not a tradition of um, the president taking a gigantic leadership role. Um, second of all, because the disease is national rather than an international problem, you can't respond to, say, Obama would to Ebola or even swine flu, yeah. where the feds use, use their immigration authority and shut stuff off because uh, the bad guy is already in the house. It doesn't do any good to lock the door. So all the president's usual traditional tools of taking a leadership role are they're missing. This is not an immigration problem. This is not a war problem. It's all over the place, and yet it's not. And that's yeah. a critical difference, right? I mean, if this were a genuine, evenly distributed problem, you could see the governors being able to pull past partisan division. But actually, the full force in New York has not yet hit Iowa. And so naturally, Kim Reynolds is reluctant to shut down her economy or cooperate um, by sending respirators to New York State because it's not everywhere quite yet. 
And I think in this fast-changing environment, it might very well be that as it spreads more widely, we'll see a greater capacity of the governors to cooperate. But right now, it's, not, it's amorphous enough that it's hard to know where the Fed should direct resources, um, but it's um, heterogeneous enough that it's hard for the states to cooperate across party lines. And you can, and you can already understand the political problem here because – Nobody wants to overreact, right? That would be a, a sign of bad leadership if you are overcorrecting before there is a problem, although there is a medical argument to say that maybe we should err more on that side. But at the same time, you can't be left unprepared when the world is on fire from a pandemic. So, you know, if, yeah. if you look at Iowa's perspective, yeah, they, they are both in the situation where they want to deliberately move slow, but also be fully prepared as if they're going to be the next Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, it, this is a case where you don't necessarily want a risk averse chief executive. Um, that's what I mean when I say um, you probably want a Napoleon or a um, Robert Moses figure. Um, because Iowa or any other state that's not, you know, New York City or Seattle um, or some states that's faced the main brunt has two twin incentives. One is to hoard. And so any consortium that could move stuff to the states that are currently fighting the battle is something that um, a governor in a less afflicted state wants to resist. Um, so that creates collective action problems. And the other is um, stay put and see what happens. Um, yeah. Right. You know, it might be that the frontline states will be able to fight off this invader. Maybe it won't get to Iowa as bad as people say it will. Right. So I think that it creates gigantic collective action problems. By the way, to add one more point, there's enormous distrust of the center, not simply because of the partisan divide, um, but also because the center is the one that has to choose winners and losers. Yeah. Um, so what I find, I find, you know, usually you see this stuff in like Reddit or some kind of fortune <laughs> conspiracy, you know, chain. But now you see a lot of governors saying there's a conspiracy afoot to direct these supplies to Ron DeSantis. Yes. Um, or to somebody, you know, who's somebody who's close to Trump. And FEMA hasn't really dispelled that, those worries because they haven't put out a comprehensive list of hotspots and how the hotspots are being decided. Now, personally, I think this talk of conspiracies to redirect resources gives much too much credit to the Fed. Yes. Chances are they just haven't gotten a plan yet. But that means every time they intervene to use their power to take medical resources under the Stafford Act, everybody's suspicious. Right. And so yeah. it's, it's created this problem where nobody really wants to exercise the power that must be exercised because of a combination of distrust and collective action problems. And that is that is a fascinating part, because it, when I when I've read stories like that, they very much sound like fog of war confusion. <laughs> but yet in mm -hmm. this in this climate, you know, uh, especially if, uh, if something is coming from a governor's mansion, there's there's not going to be much that you can say that won't make people believe that, yes, indeed, there is a political motivation to this uh, uh, particular situation, even as we are uh, so desperately trying to fight off this disease. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic problem of, uh, you know, the Federalist Papers would have said an excessively weak confederation. Um, you know, it's as if you tried to fight the Revolutionary War with um, – uh, and we did try to fight the Revolutionary War with a very weak um, Confederation framework. Um, fortunately, we had the French back then. I don't know who will play the role of the French today. Um, 
Um, you know, but th there is this um, problem of disunity and distrust, which is preventing the kind of coordinated response you'd ideally like to see. All right, let's talk a little bit about the stuff that was rolled out yesterday. Federal guidelines from the White House of a, I guess you could argue it's anywhere from three to five phases because there's a gating phase before the first and then uh, there is no phase that includes the vaccine so that theoretically would come after that. But uh, these are federal guidelines. They were offered after both the East Coast Consortium led by Governor Cuomo and the West Coast Consortium led by Governor Newsom here in California, uh, both put out their own, I think, far more general guidelines of what they would look to do before opening things up. But the Tempest in uh, or the, the story throughout the week, specifically with the melodrama that is the uh, daily press conferences, was about a, a very constitutional push and pull between the federal government and the states. Uh, so mm -hmm. the Trump comes out yesterday and says, these are the guidelines. I'm leaving it up to the governors to do what they will. Is that indeed the limit of Trump's power or would he have more power either constitutionally given or through other methods that the federal government can lean on states? Yeah, here's the thing. Um, Given the statutes that exist, unless you're going to construe those statutes very aggressively and creatively, um, the president actually does not have a lot of power to trump state um, virus response, stay-at-home orders, quarantines, that sort of thing. I racked my brain to come up with what tool in the toolbox Trump could use. If, now, I want to be clear about this. This is not a state versus federal government issue. This is a president versus Congress issue. If Congress were to enact a statute to deal with this kind of situation, namely, you know, governors who have stay-at-home orders um, that arguably cause the economy to shut down, Congress certainly has the power to preempt every single state stay-at-home order. Nobody doubts under the commerce power Congress could intervene. But the chances of Congress intervening are about as uh, high as the chance of me being picked by the NBA to be a guard. Sure. I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? And so the president's existing authority under the Constitution is nil, and his statutory authority is quite shaky. I mean, there's a couple of provisions under the Public Health Service Act where he could, quote, take such action as may be appropriate to respond to a public health emergency, end quote. Um, but nobody knows what that action is. The statute's really unclear. So, you know, I mean, he was basically bluffing when he said, when Trump said, um, I've got the authority to override governor's stay-at-home orders. I just don't, I haven't found the statute. Now, look, there's a lot of statutes out there. There's over 100 that deal with emergency situations. Yeah. Um, you know, but I don't see the statute that allows him to intervene. Um, and his inherent constitutional authority is, Pretty limited. At the very most, he could suspend habeas corpus. That's the Abraham Lincoln view. Yeah. But he doesn't want to lock people up. He wants to let people out. So what good will it do to suspend habeas corpus? And 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 in you reality, know? I think all of this, which you know turns into a constitutional scholar's argument, is can really be boiled down to the fact that he was rolling out federal guidelines on Thursday and 
Cuomo and Newsom rolled out their own guidelines on Tuesday. Uh, I think if if, uh, yeah. if 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 these had been reversed and and today on Friday when we're recording this and when we when we'll release this interview, Cuomo and Newsom both gave their own guidelines in addition to the federal guidelines. I don't think we'd be having this argument nor do I think we would get the sound bites we would have gotten. But I mean at that point what else we would have done during quarantine? So maybe it's for the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I think um, Justice Jackson said it best um, when he was describing the zone of twilight where the president can act, president can act without congressional authority. Um, and he says, look, it's based upon all kinds of imponderables, um, inertia and, you know, um, what the, pol- the politics will accept. And so these are times where if you have an energetic chief executive, they can go far farther than any lawyer would get. And if you have a chief executive who's actually not willing to, to stick their nose out, then the governors will beat him to the punch. And right now, Newsom, um, Pritzker, Cuomo are just basically always beating Trump to the punch, um, always more nimble, um, and therefore they have the power. They've got the football because they're basically moving, um, and Trump is not. (laughs) Which is so funny that we just find ourselves in this crazy political reality that uh, a— a, a president that literally comes directly out of an impeachment push into a a pandemic, uh, you know, now goes from chastened for for overstretching his powers to now, uh, uh, you know, don't we wish we had a more active federal government? <laughs> yeah, it is pretty funny. Um, I mean, funny in an odd way and funny in a sort of black humor way. It is yeah. really um a difficult situation. Uh, far from being an imperial presidency, it seems like it's a um, anemic presidency, um, and um, made all the more anemic because of the partisan hostility to this guy. Um, which, you know, I take no position on whether it's deserved or not. But obviously, that contributes to the um, inability of him, uh, the president, to mobilize where one would expect he would. All right. So, I mean, I guess here's here's my my my, my final question is with all of these uh, phases, the, the federal guidelines uh, that have gone in, let's say we have major sectors of uh, the economy by way of some of these state governments in California. Let's say California, for example, which uh, to this point has not been hit in the same way that that uh, at least initially would have been expected. Uh, let's say these federal guidelines uh, that California is meeting them and not opening things up uh, at, out of an abundance of caution. Are there any soft powers that Trump can leverage against the state, either in funding or in, in my mind, what what pops up is uh, the, the federal government getting state governments to lower the drinking age by way of uh, holding back. Or, or tying them to highway funding. Uh, are, are there moves like that for the federal government to play, should they choose? Um, uh, if Congress gets involved, sure, no problem. Um, keep in mind that those conditions were enacted by Congress. They weren't just invented by the president. And that's the thing about the strings on federal money. Um, the strings have to be put there by Congress. Gotcha. Um, there's not a lot of federal money out there that simply says to the president, by the way, you can withhold this money if you don't like Governor Newsom um, or if you want to make. And that's why the president's been losing in some of these sanctuary city cases. 
um, because there's been this effort to tie a lot of new strings to federal money that's not in the statute. Some federal judges have gotten arrested and said, wait a minute, that string's not there from Congress. You don't have the authority to withhold money unless the authorization is provided by the statute. You know, so it's not the case that the president can suddenly say to California, okay, fine, um, you don't get any highway money. Um, highway money already has got conditions, and that's in the statute. So this is something that would have to be a, a, a Mitch McConnell position if, if it were to Absolutely. come from D.C. And this is a filibusterable thing. This is not an appointment. And so it's going to be Mitch McConnell and some Democrat. Yeah. Um, right. And this is not exactly the ideal time to propose playing the heavy with the governor of California. Oh, man. Well, you know, I've said it before, and I'll end the interview on this, that whoever's programming this simulation that decided to put a global pandemic during an election year sure has a sick sense of humor. But absolutely, uh, I will I will say that it is made at least more uh, understandable by our guest, Professor Rick Hills, of course, uh, here as a professor of law from NYU. You can follow his work at Prof's blog, that is P-R-W-F-S-B-L-A-W-G.com, where he writes about federalism and the law. Uh, Professor Hills, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right, folks, let's go ahead and get into the mailbag. Of course, you can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. AC writes about Donald Trump's inability to get traction when he can't actually fight somebody. He tried China, no traction there. Now it's the WHO, but that won't scour either, as Lincoln would say. And Biden's not engaging. That's a point for Biden. I criticize his inactivity, but it's looking smarter to me every day. It's the Fabian strategy. I've also decided that Trump is Hannibal. Tactically invincible, but strategically dependent on the decisive battle. He needs an opponent. He can't get emotional leverage against a plague because it's non-anthropomorphic. I think it's a wise uh, uh, way to look at it, AC. Obviously, Donald Trump is built for, built for combat. He's built for violence. Now how you interact with him even at that point, even even from the pacifist perspective, really depends on whether or not you have another idea that is counter to his. You know, the the more we look back at 2016, it feels a little bit more dumb that we didn't see it coming, at least in the media. Because what were Hillary's ideas besides not Trump? For all the the stuff that we fixated on, on what Trump would say at rallies, his basic concept was we're getting taken advantage of by China economically. So that's listening to economic woes. The border was viewed more as an economic issue with his base than I think the media gave it credit for. So essentially he was saying jobs, jobs in the economy. And these are the solutions that I'm going to use to do it. Uh, and also, of course, the media is going to call me a racist for it. And whether or not it's racist, you know, whatever. But he was he was out here saying economy, economy, economy. Now we really can't say that because he's the one who shut down the economy, although theoretically for the right reasons, I believe for the right reasons. 
And so, you know, we, we remain in this time tunnel where all of our clocks are, are spinning round and round and all of our compasses can't keep north straight. Eventually, we're going to get out of it and, and we're going to find out exactly how much damage has been done. We do know that at least the crisis bump is over for Trump. Uh, Gallup poll had him falling six points. Uh, that was released today. And part of it is that I... I think that there is a flaw in Donald Trump's ability or his desire, his natural instinct to constantly fight with the press that he believes his his people love it that it it continues to erode the national faith in in a uh, institution that continually in his mind unfairly criticizes him but man there's also just a national need to be held <laughs> there's there's a national need to just kind of get the news out and and maybe you do like i think that there is when we look back at this, depending on where Donald Trump lands, there might even be the MAGA argument to say maybe doing the 45 minutes of questions was a bad idea. In general, I like it. I like it as a press person because I would rather the president face the question than not. And, you know, some of the, the response I get from people on online are like, well, yeah, but he's just lying. Or yeah, but he avoids the question. Doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter to me whether or not a politician avoids the question because 99% of the time a politician avoids the question. It matters to me that it is broadcast and the politician is seen as avoiding the question. It's the reason why I think it's disgusting that nobody's asked Joe Biden about the Tara Reid thing. Not because I think that Joe Biden is going to give a particularly compelling answer, but because it shows a failure of the press that he's continually allowed to do these national press hits and nobody asks him about it. CNN hasn't asked him about it. At least force him to have an answer. Even if he avoids it. But at the same time, it projects chaos. And chaos is fine when everything's going great. But when we got 22 million people out of work and nobody knows whether or not walking outside their door is going to kill them, well, chaos can wear thin. Oscar writes, you said something about this uh, in a pre-primary PX3. And the email subject that he wrote with this is uh, that uh, Biden's a quitter and quitters never win. What do you think the possibility of Trump's uh, ads and Biden's gaffes put Biden so far behind in the polls that Biden uh, and the Democratic convention delegates have second thoughts? It's a long way to August. Uh, and as you pointed out in, in uh, the PX3 on Wednesday, Biden has not won the Democratic nomination yet. And you can't until the convention. Well, right now, Biden's running ahead in the polls, and, and I don't expect that to change. So, look, unless Biden gets covid, uh, he is going to be your nominee whenever and however we have a Democratic convention. And finally, Richard writes, I just uh, have a quick story for you. 
I was at my local food line yesterday morning when I saw an employee putting up toilet paper on the shelves. The toilet paper shelves had been empty, except for what he was stocking. My gut reaction was to go over there and grab a four-pack for myself. But I heard the wise words of your mother echo into my head that I don't really need that toilet paper since I had uh, at least a few weeks' supply already. So I took a breath and decided to let the supply chain catch up. Thanks to your great podcast, we might have just saved the world. Oh, that makes me so happy. And I texted my mom about this as soon as I got the email. But yes, we don't have a supply chain problem in America. So you don't need to hoard. As long as we are buying at a steady pace, things are going to be okay. And that will wrap it up for us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who has supported the show. Again, you can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Takepoliticsseriously.com is where you can support the show. Just like these fine folks who are part of the Titanic $10 tier. Middle Age Mike, Chad, Dane, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick Utah, Jimmy Montana, D. Laser, uh, Paul, Captain Bunzo Thompson, Kilowatt Podcast, Frozen Summers, Milk Leg Scoop, Emily Wolf Glenn 99, Berkeley Steven, The Jen Hamburgers, N.H. Blumkin, Robert, Eoxy, Andrew, Angela, Brad, Brandon, Christopher, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, Deadman, Daycat, D.L., J. Milius, Jonathan, John Terica, Kevin, Lindsay, Matthew, Mike, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic Terran, Olin and Angela, Richard, Ryan, Thor, what? And you, if you head on over there and join at their level. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, uh, some shows talk about politics, others, they talk about politics, and still a third genre exists where they discuss politics, but this is the only show where they talk about, oh, Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>